Amen. Amen. It's a glorious truth. May it be the cry of our heart that the Lord would come and move among us. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Luke 19. You can find uh, that on page 1209 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Just grab that hardback Bible. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, open to page 1209. You'll be able to follow along with us. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And last week, Rod uh, led us through the passage of Zacchaeus. And as the Lord uh, did what he just finished describing as impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. And uh, just as a rich man comes to the Lord. And we're just very grateful how the Lord has led us through chapters 18 and this far into 19 and how I hope you see that all of these passages are so intermingled. You can tell that we're moving ever so close to the cross and the rapid-fire nature of the events that are happening now. There's almost no hesitation between each of these texts as we move forward. They're all just one after another after another as the Lord has set His face towards Jerusalem as a flint. And we're just... I've been so moved and so blessed by all that. Let's pray and ask God to bless us, and then we'll study His Word together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we declare now that this is the inspired Word of God, Lord. It's intended for us. It's true and perfect in every way. And, Lord, now we humble ourselves before it, Lord. Take away all that we would think to add to it, Lord, all that we would think to, to change or to resist, Lord. But make us, Father, able to hear. And we need you, Lord, to give us ears to hear and that our hearts may be transformed by it, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me give you a little background information that's going to be helpful as we look at this text this morning. As you know, uh, the nation of Israel is under Roman rule at this time. And the, the Roman Empire is in full swing. And Caesar is the ultimate Authority. He's the ultimate king or the ultimate emperor over the entire empire. But within the empire, there's all these little nations all over who Rome appoints leaders over those nations. So uh, the children of Israel, the country of Israel is is ruled over by Herod the Great. And so Herod, who's ruling over them, uh, you know, is, has been a very uh, difficult uh, ruler to say the least, but he has three sons, and in about four uh, four BC, he's going to pass away, and then his sons are going to be left sort of three sections of what he once ruled over. Well, the area uh, that encompasses Judea and Jerusalem would fall to one of his sons named Archelaus. Archelaus will come to take power. And one of the first things he will seek to do is intimidate the people into following him by slaughtering 3,000 Jews. Now, I want you to just understand that that's uh, very close to the number of people that we lost in the uh, event of 9-11 and the attack against the Twin Towers. And so you know how that event has permeated the, the culture and the minds of our nation. So I want you to understand that when this takes place, it's about 30 years after the events of Archelaus. Archelaus will go to, uh, he'll have to go to Rome and face Caesar. 
and have his kingship ratified. So what happens is, obviously, he slaughters 3,000 people. The people hate him with a passion. He's a horrible ruler. They don't want him to be king. So when he travels to Rome to, to get ratified by Caesar, a delegation of Jews go to Rome and protest to Caesar and say, we do not want this man to be our king. Are you with me? So Caesar, the ultimate politician, has got this group of Jews that he's trying to make peace in the land. What he wants is peace. He's got this group of Jews that are saying, we don't want this man to be our king. Meanwhile, he's sort of got this obligation uh, to the Herods and to Archelaus. And so he does what any good politician would do. He tries to please everybody by doing nothing. So what he does is he allows Archelaus to rule, but without the official uh, term or, or title as king. And that's supposed to make the Jews happy, which it didn't. And he ruled as king anyway. But Caesar sort of lectured him as the historians record and said, if you will go back... Uh, to Judea and you will be a good king and you will earn the right to be the leader. And so this is about 30 years after we come to this, but it's very important because Jesus knows that everyone that he's talking to knows the story of Archelaus and knows how when he went to Jerusalem or when he went to Rome, Jews went and protested him being king and all this is in their mind. And so we're going to pick this up and you'll see how it all flows into what we're going to see here, starting in verse 11. The Bible says, and as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Verse 12, therefore, Jesus said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants. And he delivered to them ten minas, and he said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a little, have authority over ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept. I put it away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap that which you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to anyone who has been given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now you see that this parable is paralleling the events of the nation. 
So people are very, very interested in what Jesus has to say here. Not as if they're normally not, but Jesus is bringing in just the, the, the current events of the time, the very sensitive issue with the, the crowd, and Jesus is trying to make a very, very strong point. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. And I, I want you to know that it does sound familiar to the parable that's found in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. But these are two different parables. They're not the same. And sometimes people make the error of joining the two together and just saying that it's two different uh, versions of the same parable. It is not. This is a different time, different place, different audience, and a different parable with a different meaning. Verse 11. Let's look at this verse by verse and see what the Lord is telling us. So Jesus says, now the Bible says that now when they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, if you write in your Bible, the first thing you want to do in verse 11 is you want to circle the second because. Because that is an indication of why everything we're about to study exists. The scripture is telling us that all of this is because the crowd thought the kingdom of God was coming immediately. That's the reason that Jesus says what he says. And when the Bible says now, as they heard these things, what things? Well, Jesus just finished this dialogue with Zacchaeus and he, he ended that by saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so they're listening to these things. This is the purpose, the thesis of the Gospel of Luke. Why the Lord Jesus is here on earth doing all of the things that He's doing is to seek and to save that which is lost. They're listening to that. And because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, they had this messianic expectation that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to end this time in just a... a he's only 15 miles. When He gets there... That he's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. You see, he knows all this. They, they hate Rome. They, they hate the fact that they're, they're, they're under oppression and rule of a foreign nation. And so Jesus then uses all of what's inside of them and all of their, their, their passion about what has been happening in their, in their country politically. And he brings forth this truth. Verse 12. Here's what he says. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now understand, we're literally weeks away from the cross. He is eight weeks from ascension into heaven. I mean, things are... It, the time is now. It is short. It's here. And just as sure as Jesus will rise from the dead and the, the tomb will be empty... He's coming again. He has declared that he will return, John 14, that where he is, he's going to return and receive us unto himself. He's going to come again and receive you unto myself, he says. And so just as this king from a far country is going to receive his kingdom and return, that's exactly what Jesus is drawing correlation to. Now, why would Jesus tell a story... Because the first question I asked when I began studying this is, it seems a little dicey to me that Jesus is going to bring this issue of Archelaus in. Because someone might make the mistake of thinking, well, 
Is this nobleman like Archelaus? In other words, is Jesus uh, uh, this saying that he's a wicked, horrible ruler like the Herods? I mean, what, what's going on here? Well, Jesus recognizes, obviously, that the people in the crowd are anticipating the suddenness and the urgency of the kingdom, but they want an easy kingdom. That's what they want. They want their life to get better, and they want it to come easily. But you see, the kingdom doesn't come easily. Jesus has been trying to explain that to them, and they haven't gotten it. He just finished saying in the previous chapter, verse 32 and 33, He said, For He will be... Uh, delivered unto the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will scourge him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. He tells them what the Son of Man is going there for, and the Bible even says, but they don't get it. They want an easy kingdom. But the kingdom doesn't come easy to Jesus or to us. Jesus also says in Luke chapter 9 that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's nothing easy about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is is bringing this story, this parable, he's weaving this into the consciousness of the people to get them to see this isn't an easy kingdom. And and our desire for something easy is a wrong Desire. Look at verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and he delivered to them ten minas and he said to them, do business till I come. So there's ten servants. He gives each one one mina. A mina is approximately three months wages. So you just imagine what you would make in a month. Multiply it times three. That's the amount of money that we're talking about. Each one gets the same amount. They're all divided out equally. And he says, now do business until I come. Be productive, make a profit literally until I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him. Whose citizens? Whose citizens are they in the kingdom? They're his citizens. In other words, understand something. Every single person on this earth breathing God's air is his. They're his, whether they recognize it or not. Everything in this world belongs to Him. He has authority over all things. And so His citizens hated Him. So they send a delegation after Him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Verse 15. And so it was that when He returned, having received the kingdom, He then commanded His servants to whom He had given the money to be called to Him that He might know how much money every man had gained by trading. And so this nobleman receives it. He comes to receive his kingdom, but then he leaves for a while. But in his absence, he's left his servants with something. But when he returns to receive his kingdom fully, he's going to call them to account. Sound familiar? Verse 16. So he comes to the first servant and he the servant says, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. I love the humility of this servant. This servant doesn't come and say, look at what I've done. I've multiplied this ten times. Look at all the money I've made you. No, this servant recognizes whose mina it is, who's in charge, who has authority. And he says, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. It was your money. It was yours. It wasn't mine. 
You just entrusted it to me while you were gone, and it has multiplied ten times over. Verse 17, so the nobleman responds to him. The king says, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a little, have authority over ten cities. Now, here, at this point in the parable, people tend to get a little bit uh, sideways. Remember, whenever we're looking at a parable, what's our rule? We look at a parable, we want to... The, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And you can get all tangled up. If you try to make every single thing in a parable mean something, you're going to get yourself in trouble. But this, uh, this reward of ten cities, well, we can look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, where he asks the questions. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Then he asks the question, do you not know that we shall judge the angels? In other words, that... Heaven is not this eternal harp recital. It's not going to be some floating around on clouds where everything we eat is made out of marshmallows and we're just singing all the time. That in eternity, God is going to, uh, He's going to come. He's going to make all things right. The, the, the earth and everything that we know is going to be reborn the way it was meant to be. And we're going to live and we're going to have, uh, we're going to have things to do. We're not going to let, we're not going to toil, but we're going to, we're going to have labor. We're going to have things to do. There's going to be things to enjoy, wonderful things. And, and we're going to have authority. We're going to have things. People are going to be placed in positions of authority. Believers are going to receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. So all of these things are laid out in scripture. And so Jesus is giving this particular faithful servant authority over 10 cities. Verse 18, then a second one comes. And he says, Master, your mina has earned five minas. So what you gave me that was yours, that you just let me hold on to, as I was stewarding it while you were away, it has went from one to now five. Likewise, he said to him, you also, you have authority over five cities. Now, if you, if you just meditate on verses 17 and 18... Uh, or 16, 17, and 18, what you begin to see here is that these servants don't appear to be motivated by the reward. They appear to be motivated by their understanding of the authority and the nature of the one in which they're serving. The reward is amazing, but they don't appear to be uh, motivated strictly by the reward, even though the reward seems to be kind of over the top, doesn't it? I mean... You just take how much money a mina is, multiply it times 10. Okay, that's a pretty good amount of money. But it's not nearly like having authority over 10 cities. I mean, it may be enough money to, to buy a house, one house. But now the reward is 10 cities or five cities. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, here's what we have to sort out. What is this minor? See... Notice what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 5. He's saying that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And we're going to have to give account for all things done, whether good or bad. But he ends by saying, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. How? How do we persuade men? Now, there was how many servants? Ten. It's not a trick question. There's how many minus? Ten. It's not a trick question. Now, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, servants got different amounts, right? Yeah. Just like we have different giftedness. We're not all gifted the same. We're gifted in different ways. And so certainly, according to Scripture, some of us are gifted in ways that more is expected of us than others. But here we see everyone gets the same amount. So what is it that all of us have been entrusted with equally the same as the Master is away before He comes again for the consummation of His kingdom? The Gospel. Thank you. That's why we persuade men. The parable is drawing our attention to the fact that while the master is away, we have been entrusted with the gospel. What is it we're doing with the gospel while the master is away? Because when he returns, what he's going to want to know is, what did you do with the gospel while I wasn't here? What are you doing with the gospel? What is your, what, what is our purpose? I mean, Think about it. We're not where we're going to be. Why? Why are we here? Why is there this gap? Why did Jesus leave and say, where I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, this is the same God that created everything in just a few days. Right? So he could have just said, hey, I'll be back in six days and we'll be good. But he didn't. He said, I'm going away and I'm going to leave you with something. I'm going to leave you with the gospel. And when I return, you're going to give account with what you did with the gospel that I gave you. And we've all been entrusted with the gospel. But not everyone responds the way these two servants have. We've got this faithful servant. And then we've got this other servant. Verse 20. Then the other came saying, Master, here is your minor which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man, or literally a severe man. You collect what you did not deposit, and you reap that which you did not sow. In other words, this servant, out of fear, is frozen and does nothing, and just hangs on to the mina. He has come to the conclusion that this severe master is going to take away whatever he does with it, that he's in a no-win situation because he's, he, he, he takes what's not his and, and he's severe in the way he deals with people. And so he just takes it, wraps it in a handkerchief, buries it in the ground and waits for him to come back. And then he says, here it is, just like you gave it to me. I took good care of it. There it is. Now, the fact that this servant sees the king as a severe man, ought to clue you in to something very important here. Because this is where the parable can get a little tricky if you don't read closely. What this reveals is that this unfaithful servant really doesn't have a relationship with the master. 
He doesn't know the character and the nature of the one who he's talking to. And we know that by the way he's responded to the first two servants. You see, the king's response proves that his fear was false. He thought that he knew the king. Or at least he thought that his ideas about the king were correct. Now, he had the same opportunity to know the king as the other servants. You see, he was in the same group of ten. We don't know about the other seven, but Jesus is just telling us about about the three out of the ten to tell us that there's different servants within the group. But they're all in the same group. They're all one group of servants. So there he is in the midst of all these servants, and these other two, they get it. They understand the nature of the, the king as he's away. But this one comes to his own conclusion. He's... And he makes up all this stuff in his head while he's a severe man. And he's just going to take what he didn't deposit. That's what he's going to do. So he chose instead to be ruled by his own ideas than by the king. Now, the question that you should be asking in your head right here is now, wait a minute. Is this servant a Christian? Because he got a mina. And if the mina is the gospel, then how does that work? He got the gospel, but he doesn't know the king. He was there with the other servants and time had elapsed. This wasn't just one day he showed up and gave him the mina and the king came back the next day. But there was some time. How does that work? Well, how about Judas? Was he one of the twelve? Was he not with Jesus all the time the other disciples were? Did he not witness the feeding of the 5,000? Did he not see Jesus calm the storm with a word? Was he not there for all the miracles? He saw Jesus raise dead people to life. He saw everything everyone else did. For three years, he walked with the Lord. But when he gets to Jerusalem, and he finally realizes Jesus isn't going to establish his kingdom right then, he sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was not a believer, nor is this wicked servant. And what we need to realize is that we can be in the midst. We can be in the same group as the servants. We can be surrounded by faithful servants. And we can be surrounded by faithful servants for extended periods of time and be lost. We can make up in our head ideas about God that aren't true. We can come to our own conclusions. We can convince ourselves why we're saved, even though we know we're not. And we can just make up all these things in our head and just push it out of our head. And then Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, when it comes to a time of invitation, we just, we just won't think about it. We just, we just go, no, there was this, you know, there was a time and I did this or I said this or whatever the case may be. And we just push it away, push it away. And then we tell ourselves things and we make up things about God. 
You know, some things sometimes are true, but they're not the whole truth. And we say, well, well, God's a good God and he sees what I, he knows me and he, he knows that I, that I mean well and that I do well. Well, he is a good God, but he's also a just God. He's also coming back. He's also going to say, what did you do with the minor that I gave you? Everyone's going to give an account. And so you can just exist surrounded by faithful servants and be a wicked servant. You see, this is the astonishing thing about this parable. Remember back in Luke 8, the parable of the soils? I mean, think about Judas and think about what Jesus said. He said, now to the one that the word fell among the thorns, to those who when they heard it, they go out and are choked up with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and they bring no fruit to maturity. You see, what did this servant have? All he had was what he was given. No fruit had come to maturity. Where was his fruit? None. Zero. And there's even an indication here. Jesus doesn't explicitly say this, but in a few minutes, there's even an indication that maybe even just simple interest would have been sufficient. Just something. Remember at the Last Supper? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is sitting there with all of his disciples. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And then something interesting happens in verse 22. Here's what the Bible says. And then they all, here's his disciples, with exceeding sorrow. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now understand, who's in the room? There's no extra spectators. Everyone's there. Only the ones who belong there. Here's the inner circle there. They start going around the room one by one. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Who is it? And then what does the Bible say in verse 25? Then Judas, who would betray him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Everyone else said, Lord, is it me? But the wicked servant said, Teacher, is it me? See, it wasn't his Lord. You can, you can look like you belong. You can act like you can belong. You can fit in. You can do all the things in the world. And none of us, you see, here's the thing. The other guys at the table, they didn't know it was Judas. They weren't pointing their finger and saying, well, if it's one of us, it's got to be him. They didn't know. Just like we don't know. I don't know. But the scary thing is, is there's Judas sitting at the table. But Jesus is not his Lord. Verse 22. And he said to him, out of your mouth to this wicked servant, he says, I judge you. You knew that I was a severe man. Collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. See, he's not, he's not saying to the man, the wicked servant, that he's correct. He's saying, I'm going to condemn you with your own words of condemnation towards me. In other words, he's, he's just simply saying, if that would have been true, look at verse 23. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming you might have collected it with interest? In other words, Jesus is saying that even if you believed what you said about me, which isn't true, you would have put the money in the bank. I mean, if you would have believed that I was a severe man, you would have done something. 
But that's exactly what we do. We make up things in our head about God to excuse away what we're not willing to do. But if you really pin somebody down, they don't even believe what they say. I mean, how many times have you sat down and talked with somebody and, and they're not a Christian and they say, well, I, I just, and there's no way I'm not going to church. I don't believe in that God. Well, why not? Well, I don't believe in a God that's, that, that's a God of, of, you know, if, he, if he's a God of judgment and wrath. Well, then I, I'm not going to worship him. Hold on. Think about that for a second. Hey, dummy, if you think he's a God of wrath and judgment, you better serve him now. I mean, you don't believe what you're telling me or you'd be serving him, right? I mean, when someone tells you something like that, just spin it around back on them. They say, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to church. There's hypocrites there. You go to Walmart? I mean, just think about it. We make up these things in our head. You see, the, the truth about the wicked servant is that he didn't do anything with what was entrusted to him. See, the sower sowed the seed. And the same seed hit all the soils. And sometimes the same seed that hits the good soil and grows up strong and multiplies a hundred times over, hits hard ground, hits thorny, rocky soil, and it springs up for a moment. But then it withers away. You see the cares of the world getting away. And, you know, all of a sudden when you find out the kingdom's not easy. Oh, you mean, oh, I thought all my problems were going to go away if I started coming to church. I mean, I, I thought that no Christians get sick or struggle or ever lose their job or ever face any hardships. My bad. You see, Jesus is so cleverly forcing every one of us this morning to figure out where in the world are we. I mean, he is just pressing this issue right down in front of us. And there's not a person in this room who hasn't been given a minor. Because even if today is the first time you've ever set foot in a church and ever heard a man preach the word of God, today is your minor. And you're either going to say, I don't want this king to rule over me and storm out the back door. Or you're going to be a faithful servant or a wicked servant. There's only three choices. You see, the truth here is, is that works we know cannot save us. But you cannot be saved without works. You understand that? Works don't save us, but you can't be saved without works. 
So the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace through faith we've been saved, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. It's not by works. But yet at the same time, James says faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In other words, works can't save you, but if you're saved, there's going to be evidence of salvation. And so either way, you you got to reconcile where are you? And the problem that we have in this culture is that we build this, this shallow Christianity, disguise it as something really deep. And here's how the, the little trick goes. We make up a Christianity in our own head that's all about all the things we don't do. And then we pride ourselves in the fact that we don't do all those things. You see? And so we think that we're a good Christian because we don't cuss or we don't drink or we don't cheat on our wives or we don't cheat on our taxes or we don't... Well, we probably half the time do half of those things anyway. You see, but how hypocritical is it to to say that the thing that makes us a Christian are all the things we don't do? Doesn't that sound eerily familiar? When you're reading the Gospels, who is Jesus the hardest on? The Pharisees. And what are the Pharisees priding themselves on? Everything they don't do. But Jesus is saying, but what do you do? What are you doing with the mina? Certainly there's things you don't do. But what are you doing with it? James 4.17, therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, sin. You see, it's more than just saying, well, I don't do that. Well, great. But what are you doing? I mean, if, if your whole life is spent in retreat, if everything about you, if, if all the things that make you a Christian are all the things you don't do, then exactly what are you going to have in your hand when the king returns and you start giving an account for everything done? The Bible doesn't say you're going to give account for everything not done. It says, what do you do? What did you do? Whether good or bad. What did you do? What were you doing? How were you investing? How were you multiplying what the king left you? You see, this is why Paul tells the 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 beautiful church at Philippi. He says, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, that's, that's our problem. Our problem is, is that, that we, we just have this, this easy Christianity, this easy believism. You could just roll down to some church somewhere and just roll right in the door and just say, you know what? I don't think hell's for me. And you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that church after church after church has roles that are chalk filled with Judases who aren't doing anything. They're just hanging around the team. They're sitting around the table eating. They're involved in all the stuff, you know. They're just right there. They kind of look the same, but it's just a teacher. It's not a Lord. Not a Lord. Jesus saying, that's just not the way it works. 
you know, well, well, Tony, I mean, how, how do I, what do I do with this? How, where do I go from here? Well, I would say the first thing you need to do this morning is you need to ask yourself a series of questions. Starting with, well, what am I doing with the minor that I've been given? What am I doing? Listen, church. I mean, you know that I think that this is the greatest church on the planet. And I thought that way before I was the pastor. Because I've been here for 18 years, so I must like something. But listen. If your Christianity exists of listening to me followed by listening to another hour of your Sunday school teacher followed by the same old Monday through Friday routine, I'm fearful for you. In other words, this is what I want you to recognize. I want you to realize that you're not going to get rewards in heaven because of how many Sunday school lessons you've listened to. You may have the most obedient Sunday school teacher in the world. You may be listening to a sermon that I spent 25 hours studying so that I knew this text up one side and the other so I could preach it to you. But if all you do is sock it away and go out there and don't do anything with it, it is of no good. The mina has not done anything. You are a conduit. The truth that comes into you is meant to be utilized. I mean, this week, I just got down on my knees and I, you know what I did? I just prayed. I said, God, please, please encourage our Sunday school teachers. Because I'm thinking if I'm a Sunday school teacher and when I hear this, I'm going to think the same thing I'm thinking every week. I study and I study and I study and every week I stand up there and I pour my heart out to the class. For what? Are they doing something with it? Are they, are they taking what they hear and they're taking it to their job? Are they telling their lost neighbors about you, Lord? Are the knowledge that we're gaining in this place is all that for something or are we just a depository? Are we just like the Dead Sea? You know, the Dead Sea, fresh water runs into the Dead Sea every day. But it's dead. You know why? Because there's no outlet. And so you can have the freshest water in the world running in. But if nothing's going out, it's just dead. It's just dead. And I'm, I, I, I look at this wicked servant and I see somebody who's just sitting on their mina wrapped up in a handkerchief and they think they're good. I'm good. And you're not. Now, I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. That's the last thing I want you to do. But what I do want you to do is to work it out in fear and trembling. I want you to examine your heart. I want you to say, God, are you the Lord of my life? Does my life exhibit your lordship? Or are you merely the teacher that gives me instruction? Because there is a difference. What are we doing with it? How are we taking what God has deposited in us? 
and utilizing it in the time that he's away because he's coming back. And he's going to demand an account from every one. Or do you, do you find yourself habitually in sin this morning? Are you sitting here with a heart full of secret sin that you've just been hiding away and it's just time after time? You're just like a broken record. It's just here we go again, here we go again, here we go again. I have no idea. Do you? Here's what the Bible says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Does that mean you don't struggle? Of course not. Does that not mean that there's not seasons of great trial as you're just trying to agonize and deal with your sin? Well, of course there is. None of us are perfect. But the thing is, is that if you are a habitual sinner, if you find yourself in the same sin over and over and over, and you just excuse it away and just write it away, you need to ask yourself a question. Have you been born of God? Because at what point do we say, you're my Lord, you hate what I'm doing, but since I can't stop doing it, I guess you're going to be okay with it. Come on. Men, what's on your computer? What are you looking at that you ought not look at? What, what? Mud hole, are you dragging your wife and your children through every single day and you have a million times over said, well, I just can't quit. Well, that's just not true. It's not true. How many families are going to have to explode? Young people? What's on your phone that your parents don't know about? What things are you watching after everybody goes to sleep? Oh, it's okay. Everybody does it. Really? But what does the Bible say? How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? That's what Romans ask. How? Are we... Faithful servants? Or are we Judas Iscariot? Where are we? Where are we? Verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to him who has ten minors. So the one who doesn't do anything with it, he gets that taken away. And then he gives it to the one who has ten. And so the crowd protests. They say, wait a minute, master, he's already got ten minors. Verse 26, for I say to you that anyone who has, to him it will be given. And from him who does not have, then what he has will be taken away from him. It's just the consistent teaching of Scripture. Matthew 16, 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever desires to lose his life for my sake will find it. That's exactly what the Bible says back in Luke chapter 8. Therefore, take heed how you hear. You better take, listen to how you hear the mina, because whoever has... Whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. 
How do you respond to the hearing of God's Word? I mean, here's a great question. Are the things that you hear on Sunday still rattling around in your head on Tuesday? Or about Wednesday, you don't even remember what was going on here on Sunday. In other words, when the mina goes out, when the mina sets on your heart, what happens to it? Where does it go? I mean, are we, are we anticipating another glorious deposit of the mina from the master? I mean, are we coming in, man? We got a Bible in hand. We're here early, early, sitting down, ready to roll. Man, I got my pen, my paper, and let's go. Go to Sunday school. Come on. Because I need a deposit because everything that was deposited last week, I've already spent out, so I need some more. Or are we just rolling around so fat with the mina, just loaded and bloated that we can't even hardly move? And it's just every single Sunday we come and just graze at the trough. Is it leaving? What are we doing with it? How do we respond when we hear God's word? First John 2, if you know that he's righteous... See, if you know the king, if you don't make up things in your head about the king, if you know exactly who he is, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See, you just know that. Which is why the first two servants, they knew the king. He was their Lord. And so when he gave them a mina, they said, thank you very much. They took the mina. They knew exactly what they needed to do. And here's the glorious thing. They didn't say, you see what I did with your mina? Because, see, what I'm not telling you this morning is what you need to do is leave here condemned and go, man, after that sermon, man, i got to get out there. i got to try hard. No, that's not what I'm saying. You're missing the whole point. Those first two faithful servants, they didn't go out there and, and, and make those minas multiply. They were just faithful with what God gave them, and He multiplied it. They went in His strength. You see, the, the, the Lord's work ought not be, it ought not be something that just beats you down. You're working for the king. For the king. And listen, when he returns, he's going to say crazy things to faithful servants like, take ten cities. What? I mean, he doesn't say, okay, here's, you know, go get you some cotton candy. He's giving away cities, people. This is a generous king. He's got things prepared for us that we can't even conceive of. But there's one more group and then we're done. See, there's people who want an easy kingdom. But then there's people who have no interest in the kingdom whatsoever. Remember back in verse 14, Jesus said about in the parable, he said the citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Then he comes back to that now at the end of verse 27. Jesus says to that group, he says, now, now bring those enemies of mine, bring them here, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Is that harsh? Does it bother you? Does that go against what you've 
decided in your head God's light? Revelation 19 says, Now I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. For he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, the King of kings and Lord. Lord of Lords. He's not your teacher. He's not here to give you wise counsel. He's the Lord who reigns. And when he comes again, he won't come given minus. He's coming back to judge. And all those who didn't want anything about his kingdom, all those who were too busy or too scholarly or too whatever it was, they, they're not out. They're not interested. They're all coming before that king. All of them. Every one of them. And they're going to face the full wrath of the same loving and beautiful God that today says, here's a minor. What will you do with it? Please take this minor. And go tell somebody. Because I'm coming back. And when I do, it's not going to be pretty. How many lost people do you know today? How many people live in your neighborhood and work at your place of employment? How many people are in our families that are they're one step away from that? Judgment. God, please don't let us walk around with our mind wrapped up in a handkerchief. And Lord, please, please convict the hearts of your people to be about your business while you're away. That you might find us good and faithful servants at your return. Lord, thank you for your goodness towards us. Let's stand and pray. Father, we declare before you this morning that you and you alone are the Lord. And Father, I am so grateful and so thankful that I can say this morning with no hesitation, That you are by far the greatest, most amazing, wonderful person who has ever come into my life. Lord, you have transformed my life in such a way that I cannot even begin to express it. And Lord, I stand before a people, many of whom have been radically altered and transformed by your glorious power and might. And Father, we thank you and praise you for that this morning. But God, at the same time, there are those who resist you. They resist you.
And Father, we are so prone in our minds to come up with our own ideas about the way things are going to be and the way they're going to go. And Father, the only thing that matters today or any day is the truth. So Lord, I pray that the truth, the truth of your word will come forth this morning in our hearts and we'll respond accordingly, Lord. There are those here this morning who need to come and kneel and pray and seek your face, Lord, and repent. Repent for the mind that's in their handkerchief. And Lord God, to, to, Father, just seek your face and encouragement. And Lord God, as you begin to lay upon their hearts all those who are in their path that you have placed there for them to minister to. Father, there are some here today who they need to come and plant their lives in this fellowship and belong to something where they can grow as a, as a believer, where they can grow as a family of, together, where they can find encouragement and truth and wisdom, Lord. God, there are some here this morning who need to come and they need to ask you to save them. And Lord God, I, I pray against any temptation this morning to respond to you out of fear, Lord God, I pray that your spirit would draw lost men and women and teenagers unto yourself, Lord. And that we might sense your spirit working in your love and gracious and saying, come on, child, come to me. Come to me. I wait for you with open arms. I love you. I know everything about you. Come, be a part of my family. When I return, Oh, when I return, you have no idea what I've prepared for you. Father, help us to respond in truthfulness before you. We'll give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. You come. I'm here. Pastor Rod's here. Pastor Brian's here. We just love to pray with you, encourage you, thank God with you. If you or if you're struggling this morning, come. Let us pray for you. If you'd like to receive Christ as Savior, come this morning and say, Lord, be my Lord. Be my Lord. He's here.